As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash mpn to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash mpn. Terms and conditions apply. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Cindy Finch is a licensed clinical social worker who specializes in helping people come through their darkest times. She trained at the Mayo Clinic and has been featured in the Los Angeles Times, HuffPost, and Cure Magazine. A survivor of traumatic life events, Cindy writes and works from lived experiences. She's helped thousands of people through their suffering, encouraging them to move forward and keep enduring to come out invincible. Her latest book, When Grief is Good, was released this past September. And here to talk about that and oh, so much more is Cindy Finch. Welcome to the program, Cindy. I was going to make this a podcast actually about you if we can do it. Okay. Sure. Yeah. So I had three children in you know the regular way and i did not have this multiple litter experience of children like you guys did and i just need to know everything immediately because i would have lost my damn mind with triplets you're my new favorite like parent expert really could you just put your wife on though for real i feel like she can do whatever she wants to like that woman i don't even know her but she popped three babies out and then raised those damn kids she did like you better kiss her toes and feet every day and like she's mm. well, there needs to be a name the opposite of karen but it needs to be your wife's name for like the antithesis of women to be worshipped everywhere moms of multiples yeah, come yeah. on we, and and uh, not oddly enough, um, we are members, well, she is a member of the Mothers of Multiples and uh, Mothers of Super Twins, they're called. Uh, anything anything three and more is called Super Twins. Yeah, superheroes. <laughs> super- like, that's the parent, like, you guys get it. Yeah, not all heroes were capes, Cindy. Um, I know, I know they have three bottles at once. That was like right. you guys. That was, that was challenging. I, I remember one time feeding them uh, three at the same time in oh, my arms. It I've got a picture of it. Yeah. It's uh, and one of them had a broken femur. Um, Oh, snap. Just add to it. Well, it did snap because he decided to, (laughs) he decided to climb on, you know, the cabinets. 
So he tried to, he pulled himself up. It's the boy. It's always the boy. Girls are having tea parties. Sorry to be so gender like. Oh, well, he, he had his fair share of tea parties, but um, okay, he was also, topic. he was also a very inquisitive young man. And uh, he pulled himself up onto the kitchen counter and then he let go. Um, and then lots of crying ensued as well as a trip to the ER. So, but I, all right. I, so, so on my, on my podcast of Mike and the multiples, like what is the number one piece of advice you'd give to new parents? Is it like get three iPads for these three kids all at once or like have the live in grandparents? Like what lore tab? I don't know. What's the, uh, I'd say no to the screens because um, we held off on those as long as we possibly could. I'd say find, if you don't have it, find it, your sense of humor, because that is the only, a sense of humor and teamwork are the only way to to do it. Yeah, um, yeah. And take divorce off the table. <laughs> it's, well, you know, I, some people don't make it, <laughs> but we had the shared, uh, the shared experience and, and we were both, I mean, I was 27 years old. Um, uh, with three, my wife's a little bit older. I won't give her age. Um, she's 74 and she, um, but none of us had, I mean, well, that was fertility treatments. It like so hardcore, um, like a surrogate or yeah, no, it was, it was, um, you know, that's a story for another time. Right. Uh, um, you know, if you remember the story of Abraham and, uh, and Sarah in, in, oh, the, in, the, in the, in the, in the OT, as they call it. Um, no, we, um, no, it's really sense of humor and, and some kind of a, a partnership because otherwise you're doomed. I mean, that's the only way to to kind of get through it. And we right. I mean, we were not in the financial position at the time to afford full time help or a nanny or a living or an au pair or anything like that. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I have clients. Oh, I love my clients. I'm not bagging on you, but they're like, oh, my God, the nanny called in sick. And I'm like, oh, my God, like we did all that ourselves. Yeah. You know, I have, a, I have a twin brother um, and he had a, a singleton as this is, you know, us, us multiple people. We call them singletons. Um, <laughs> I like to call my brother a simpleton every now and then. But, and that's what he is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I remember one day he was complaining about, you know, oh, God, I got to take Thomas somewhere. And I'm like, dude, one, one, one. I mean, I'm like, I take these three kids everywhere, many times solo, um, just the way the division of labor worked out on weekends. Um, so I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear any complaining about one child being too you much. You put the shut to the up over there, you single right. parent of a only. Right, right. No, but I was thinking about, because I know you are an expert on grief and that that's what your uh, book is about. Um, I'm a reluctant expert and I'm pissed that that is my expertise. You know, you wrote a book called Grief is Good. Um, and, and I know that there are many different types of grief and I'm sorry just to jump right into it, but. Um, I mean, let's talk about the dark thing. Should we just like go there and be like, all right, here's the deal. Yeah. The book is like the Diamond Dogs meeting in Ted Lasso for shitty times. Yeah. What it's like. Yeah. The book is literally a guide to get you through a bunch of bullshit in your life. And it's a good enough book. I'm just telling you, it's not great. It's a good enough book because that's how I stay happy. I don't need to be perfect. I'm not, I'm the fourth of four. Like there's no pictures of me growing up. Like I'm very happy with hand-me-downs. I don't care. I'm good. I'm, I'm like approximation to the goal. I'm not like, oh, I need that gold star. That's my brother. Like yeah. he's this great attorney, like rock on with his success. Here's me. Like I'm super happy when things are good enough in my life. Like I have a really kick-ass marriage, but I'm always like, 
yeah, you're cool over there. I just like you the way you are, husband, because as soon as you start putting pressure on them to be like, oh, if you gain 10 pounds or, oh, you're looking this or that, like all the fun goes out, right? So it's a good enough book, but as it turns out, and this was by accident, I'll tell you later, I did not want to write this mm, book, but by accident, it also actually happens to be a guide to move people into post-traumatic growth which is a trip. I didn't realize it till afterwards, but now I'm just calling all post-traumatic growth, post-pandemic growth. So we're going to do the PPG with my book. Okay. That's what it is. And it's, and it's, it's okay. I have, I have a, just, just question off the bat here. Is there an evolutionary significance to grief? Because I mean, I think it's one of these things where I mean, I, I avoid it at all costs. I mean, oh, and, and, I'm sure, and I'm sure as human beings, like we, we don't necessarily rush towards sadness. Like I know if I have a very oh. difficult conversation, um, which is going to lead to upsetting somebody, I will avoid that thing. You got to stay away from that at all costs. Yeah. Like, that shit. Yeah. Yeah. Like for instance, okay. Evolutionary significance, like that's super heady and cerebral, but I have an introduction to it. Okay try this. I did this book launch party. It was super fun. And the coordinator of it, she's like, Hey, so did you want to have like a signature cocktail at the event that night? You know, we're having a little cash pay bar. Um, because my husband was like, you definitely need to have alcohol at your party because people will just buy more books when they're a little slushy. So I was like, Oh, okay, good. Yeah. Like beer wine. So the party coordinator calls and she's like, so did you want to have a signature cocktail that's kind of related to your topic for that night of the party? And I was all, hell yeah, but like, what is the signature cocktail of shitty times of grief? And then I looked at my husband and I was like, isn't that literally just a shot of tequila? I mean, that's the signature cocktail. But and it's so funny. He does this search and rescue work and they had a really grisly retrieval, I'll call it is this young gal that wandered out into the desert. She's actually from Jersey and she was at the end of a bender and she just died out in the desert because she got disoriented at night. It's super sad. Like I'm not trying to harsh our mellow, but his team found her remains and it jolted him. And he called me from the bar. He's like, I'm at the bar and I just need to tell you this. And I'm like, that's exactly where people go with this stuff. And that's all that grief avoidance. Cause I don't want to feel it. So now please introduce your idea of this evolutionary idea around grief. What? You're the, you have the floor. I have the floor. Well, um, <laughs> let's make it about me. No, I, I just have this thought that, I mean, if, you know, I, I'm wondering if there's like a balance, if nature has to have a balance, meaning um, if, if we are allowed these times of like extreme happiness, Right. Mm -hmm. We have to have something to balance it out. And, and I'm wondering if like evolutionary, if that's if there's something Darwinian about it, that that sort of says, hey, you know what? You got to take the good, take the bad, you know, take the both. And there you have the facts of life, not to um, sort of go into 80s sitcom uh, jingles. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's OK. Like I can even get a couple 80s sitcoms like who's the boss? Oh, my gosh. Alyssa Milano. Anyhow, back to the point. Yes. Here you did it this morning or this afternoon, like you're East Coast, right? I'm barely out of bed over here in California. You were like, it's, we're having a rare day and it's 70 and I'm so glad for it because you had had the brutality of 30 degrees and you were so thankful for 70. So evolutionarily Darwinian, maybe, but when I have extreme bad 
things. That's a, like a, uh, such a kindergarten phrase, but I have really epic suffering. I'll tell you what, I will appreciate the tiniest of things. I'll appreciate the, the most average common things. Like I went through this crazy experience with cancer while I was pregnant and cancer lowered all my expectations on life. Like I was so happy with, I woke up today. So there's this thing where grief is like this guru that comes in and says, so you want meaning, you want purpose, you want joy. Okay, I need to give you this dark night of your soul because then as soon as you come out of that sewer, everything's gonna look super sweet like a Sunday to you. And it does, oh my gosh, like it, it catalyzes us. It gets in there and it's like, look, I need to do some stuff to you that you can't, you won't sign up for on your own. Like this is not a class you're gonna register for at school. So I'm just gonna throw you in. And by the way, you're going to become the person you always wanted to be because of it. But ready, go. So you, I mean, you mentioned before that you're a kind of a reluctant expert on grief. And um, am I right in assuming that um, that that title, reluctant expert, had something to do with you coming down with cancer when you were pregnant? Yeah, but that wasn't it. I was just happy to be like, bye, cancer. Um, although I'll have to tell you, grief and loss and struggle and suffering that we went through, we were like 31. I think cancer to us was like triplets. I don't know. I don't want to say, but it was super unexpected and hard. But it um, it gave me a lot of empathy for people who are having non-typical struggles. It didn't make me the reluctant grief expert or a person to talk about grief. I'll tell you what it did, like over the period of two years, like seven or eight people just dropped dead around me. And I go, and that's not that much actually, to be honest, because I now I know people with far worse stories, people in my family, like we had a suicide, but I had this really crazy uh, uh, week at work where I had a client um, that she died in her sleep. She was 24. And then the next day, two of my clients were murdered. And it was right on the heels of us losing our son's best friend who had been living with us. He was 18. Like I saw him, he left for work. And five minutes later, he got hit and killed by a car. And it was just this crazy intersection of like from bad to worse, where I don't want to hang out in that stuff. And then I kind of got like, did you ever have this where like when a topic is coming to you or a new developmental stage for you in life where it just keeps finding you like it's in the newspaper, people read newspapers, it's on the internet, people are talking about it. And so there kept being all these pings. Um, and one of them was this girl that kept calling me going, I need a grief therapist, I need a grief therapist. And I was like, yeah, our agency, we don't do that. Um, we do this other specialty. And, and so one, two, three, four, five, literally just kept being around me until my mentor, oh my gosh, I have a mentor. Can I just tell you, I like having a mentor. I've never had a mentor before. And I have one, everybody should have a mentor. Like I think children should be born with two parents and a mentor because we're going to like push against and rebel and develop away from our parents. And we're like, you suck. You don't know anything. I know everything. I'm, I'm 16. But the mentor is like that really cool aunt that will talk to you about all the forbidden stuff and yeah. just let you. Okay. So I have a mentor. So my mentor was like, look, you need to write a book about all this. And I go, like, I don't want to. And she's like, okay, okay. Just come sit with me and blah, blah, blah. So I, I actually sketched out a little framework for a book, but here's what I called it. 
how to do brave things. How to That's find an exciting title. Right? It's awesome AF. And she was like, nope, nope because you're going to do your reader a disservice because that's not how it went down for you. There's a lot of darkness before light broke through. You, you, if you shortchanged all the story of the grief and loss and suffering that you guys had, that you've been through, um, you're going to uh, miss it and people aren't going to know what to do with all their suffering. So you need to find a way to tell the story because grief was very good for you, Cindy. And I was like, dang it. Like, I want to write a book about like heroes and bravery and courage. And she said, that was the result of your grief. So she um, made me mad and she pushed me and pushed me and pushed me. And then I did it and I, and during a pandemic, don't, why did I write a book about grief during a pandemic? It was so depressing. Like, oh. But anyway. useful, but useful, depressing, but useful, I'm sure. Ah, yeah, yeah. Because we all want that uh, renaissance after the dark ages now, sure. right? Yeah. Uh, so this is that, uh, this is a good enough version of that. So what was the writing process like for you? I mean, this, so the book came out in September of, of this year. Mm -hmm. um, when did you start writing it and what did you kind of learn about yourself during the writing process? Well, I want to ask you that because you've written way more books than I have. And you even use the F word right on your cover. Well, I was like, I wonder if I can swear on his podcast. And I'm like, I can. I'm pretty fucking sure you can, Cindy. That's right. I was like, I can. Cause he, here's why I know I can. Okay. Because you swear right on your own cover. You've had three children. I bet you and your wife invented new swear words, raising three kids because you're a comedian, come on. And then, cause you live on the East coast. Well, you know, everybody outside of the Midwest and the, well, I lived in the Midwest for a while and I met somebody from New York. You guys are like rare creatures in the Midwest. And she used the F word as a noun, as, as a verb, as a adjective. And I was like, well, you, you can even use it as a dangling participle if you want you to. Can, you can use that in a lot of ways. Okay. All right. Wait, what was the question? The question was, uh, I think you were, you kind of redirect, uh, redirect your honor. You're redirecting towards me in terms of, um, uh, uh, oh, what was it? Using oh, the writing process. The, the writing, writing process. That's right. So, um, you know, it's interesting you bring up that book because I was going through a period of grief, um, when I was writing that, it was um, I would I had been unceremoniously let go. Oh, I read about uh, it from a very lucrative job of which I was like the top producing consultant. What? Department. You know, my age had something to do with it, um, although they will might deny it. Uh, being that I was I was the oldest person in her office. No, no, see, no, that's not right. Should we egg them? Right. No, we're not, we won't egg them. Everyone, um, you know, they, I, I got a great story out of it. Um, but so I, I said, you know what, I need to, I need to take this, this darkness that I'm in because I was, I mean, I was okay, you know, financially at the time. I, I did also have some very great clients who, um, you know, thankfully before I joined that firm, I put in a clause saying any clients that I bring are mine after I leave. And okay. Uh, so that was, you call that all the foresight. So I was, I was protected in that regard, but I was angry at how it all went down because it was so inhumane. I was literally on the phone with this guy who, who had, he had a, he had his foot was wrapped up in a bandage 
because uh, he had like foot surgery. And, and I later turned that into him shooting himself into the foot. <laughs> but he told me, he, told, <laughs> he said, you know, um, you know, staffing is, you know, we're a little overstaffed and, uh, you know, revenues haven't been great this year. Even though you're doing fine, um, you're just a lever I have to pull. So we're going to <gasps> we're going to terminate. I and hand to God, those are his words. A lever you have to pull. And I'm like, well, I've never been so dehumanized in my life. Um, Thank you very much. I've and I had, and, and at the time, I had three teenagers at home. So no, and they're all happy and happy at home, and so helpful, aren't they? Well, they are, and they're all so grateful for everything that they have. Every but, minute of the day. They, uh, no, but I said, you know what? So I, I, you know, and, and my wife has, um, she's got some anxiety issues and I knew that if I told her, so this was December 8th, I think it was the feast of the Immaculate conception. If I'm not sure it was either that or Pearl Harbor day, I get those two days mixed up. Um, <laughs> so either cool. way, either way, there was a sneak attack on yours truly. Uh, <laughs> so, well, you're just pulling a lever though. Let's remember that. Okay. Just, just a lever. Thank goodness. Yeah. It was just a lever. I'm so glad you know your worth and value in this world, Mike. You're just yes. that lever. Just a lever. Just uh, live to be a lever. Just live to the lever potential. Would you? That's all. That the, the book, my first work of nonfiction will be live to the lever. Um, Would you just make it? That's it. And when somebody level sets for you like that, just be like, yep, I'm, I'm just levering. Yeah. But what I learned during that, I mean, so I, so I took a, a very similar character, same thing happened to him. Although he gets to go on an adventure to Hawaii with a starlet who uh, helps him transform from uh, Clark Kent to Superman, basically. I'm saying thank you for that. Love it. Yes. And that was, uh, but, but what I learned is that, you know, to, to address terror and fear, you can attack it with humor. And um, that's what I, that's what I did in that book. Um, and it, it is, it is a, I mean, the audiobook I have to give a plug for extremely funny. The, the guy who narrated, it's a guy named Mike Dawson who lives out your way in California um he's also the voice of the adam carolla show uh knocked it out of the park i mean he just became this guy and it was so so great but thank you for asking and giving letting me plug my own book on my own show well because this is actually our show today so i'm loving okay, that take we over yes you. i think that's wonderful and i i <laughs> Your books are punny to no end, and I'm very happy about them and love them. And, and I'm like, bring more of that because you can totally disarm suffering and um, <laughs> yeah, bad things with humor. My husband and I, when we, I had, I had to have open heart surgery, which was super inconvenient for my schedule. Um, we would sit in the underground tunnels at Mayo Clinic. Like, do you know, they have like all these secret underground tunnels in Minnesota. So such a weird long story, but it's really cool. We would sit under there and watch all these older patients and being kind, but all these super old crusty people like on their walkers. And cause that's who should have open heart surgery. I'm just saying going on record. I don't like that having to have done that. And we would talk about maybe the drug mules that were like transferring around under these tunnels in Mayo Clinic. And we would laugh our butts off. And it was so good because I swear to Pete like whoever Pete is um if we weren't laughing we were crying yeah and the best thing like my husband ever you're gonna think we're alcoholics but I used to work at Mayo Clinic later on I started my day in the ICU where people were like at a level 10 out of 10 like despair and agony these families and stuff and by Thursday of that week I was sort of like I'm gonna lose my mind because of the intensity of the job and um, he, my husband initiated this thing called bourbon Thursdays 
So we would like literally like drink, you know, a seven and seven. Is that what bourbon goes in? I think it is. And then watch a really raunchy movie like like Tropic Thunder, like some kind of raunch con that's super irreverent. And I would just take one drink and one hour of a raunchy movie to like alter me and laugh my butt off. He goes, I need to get you laughing to the point you're leaning forward laughing. And then I know I've done my job on Bourbon Thursdays. And I'm like, I, it's true. It's you, right? Going, I'm going to make fun of this shit. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. So humor is, is probably the best way to disarm somebody or disarm tension in a situation. I mean, I think, you know, you learn it like if, if you're picked on as a kid, um, you know, and, and kids are ruthless. Right. So I grew up um, my twin brother and I grew up, you know, not not always the Adonis that you see before you, Cindy. But, you know, we were like heavier. So we weren't like athletic. Um, oh. This is before I discovered my my love of running. And, um, you know, you get picked on and, and there are there are certain responses you have. Right. So if, if you're being bullied, you can fight back. Um, which, you know, you probably have a 50, 50 chance of, of doing okay with. Rough, yeah. yeah. You, and where are you in the pecking order? Right. Right. You could, you could completely ignore it, which will not um, go well at all. Or you can be the funny person. You can develop a sense of humor about it and you can kind of throw it back to people. That was my tactic. Um, and I developed this like really, really strong sense of humor. And I realized that you could use that to disarm a situation. I, I was hired years ago to run a focus group or a series of focus groups with men who suffer from BPH, which is, if I remember correctly, benign um, prostate hyperplasia, enlarged prostate basically, so pre-cancer, but these guys have big prostates and they have to pee all the time. All but, the time, they're like super like not happy. No, they're not happy. <laughs> and when, they, when you get a bunch of them in a room who are strangers and ask them to talk about it without having any frame of reference of who I am, um, you know, there was an edge to that. People don't necessarily open up. So my tactic was to go in there and just, you know, let the humor go during introductions or whatever. And then within 10, 15 minutes, I have guys talking about, you know, um, how much they have to pee at night and, and all this stuff, but and how uh, sucky their sex life is actually, it, it can be sucky and not in the way they wish. Not in a good way. And that's one of the things that we got to eradicate BPH, man, because we got to get guys back on the good sucky part of sex. But what was interesting was that um, my client had pulled me out in the middle of the group uh, and they said, we need to talk to you. I'm like, what's the matter? Like, you're having way too much fun in there. These guys are laughing. They need to be responding to the, you know, the advertisements that I'm putting in front of them. I'm like, look, I'm like, I will try it your way for the next group. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then uh, let's for the third group, let's see which way we, we go. Second group, no laughter, complete duds, um, and just stoic faces. And then my client comes back to me and says, you know, you were kind of right. You know, maybe you should just kind of lighten everything up. And I'm like, thank you. I think I know what I'm doing. Asshole. Okay, I'm going to give you a sound effect for the second meeting. This yes. Is, this is my sound effect for that. Wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs> that was the second group, right? Where people, like, you need to give them, like, add a little value. And you're yeah. bringing your Mike C value. Well, it was, it was interesting because the clients, my client's boss, who was also observing the session, turned to me and said, what the hell happened in that second group? Like, it's like you're a different person. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm not going to sell this guy, you know, throw this guy under the bus. But the guy who works for you pretty much told me to shut the hell up and just read from the script. But I didn't do that. Um because I have some some emotional intelligence inside. But. Right, right. It's such a killjoy, right? When people are like, just stay on target, just stay on the script. 
<laughs> what fun is that though? No, there's no fun. There's no fun. I mean, I always like to say that the work that I kind of do is more like um, playing jazz music and improvising versus reading sheet music. Because if, mm -hmm. if you can't, you know, if you can't go in and follow your nose and go in a different direction, then, you know, you might you might miss an opportunity to uncover some real insight into benign prostate hyperplasia. You never know where BPH might take you. And like, I mean, I could basically say we're bonded now over BPH. We could be. We could it's, a, it's a bicoastal kind of pairing, a friendship pair. Yeah, yeah, amazing, amazing. And I don't even literally have a male prostate, but I feel like no. I do. Well, you know, um, I, uh, I I'm due to have mine checked. Um, okay. Been avoiding that um, like the plague, but um, as you should. I mean, like you probably have what five more minutes, years until that thing can just go crazy on it, you. It just could rupture at any moment, you know, and probably already yeah. ruptured. Let's be so, honest. But back to uh, back to grief, back to grief. Um, what I mean, so so you know, we, we have this natural tendency to avoid avoid grief, um, but I imagine that's not good for us, is it, Cindy? Well, sometimes you just have to, and because you like got to go to work, pay the bills, um, deal with reality and life and stuff and stuff. You know how that all happens. The thing about grief avoidance, though, is it gets into this hectic area where the more I push it down and avoid it, the more it comes out sideways. Mm -hmm. So like in a couple of weeks, I'm actually speaking at this big lifelines meeting. But it's like, I don't know, a couple hundred um, people that are in recovery from drug and alcohol addiction. And I think it's going to be really cool to be together. But one of the big things is that the underbelly of addiction is often unprocessed loss and grief. And I'm, you know, if I'm struggling to hold that stuff down because it's super painful, I don't know. Like, I don't willingly want to go put my hand on a hot stove. Like I move away. But a lot of times when people get sober and they really get underneath all of the survival patterns, AKA drinking and addictions and um, like uh, mood altering that we try to do, right. What's the, what's the cocktail of grief? It's a tequila shot. It's called your wife from the bar after a difficult day, um, when people really get under it, really what they find is driving their addictive behaviors is an avoidance of pain. And the pain is some deep stuff that's been holding them back that they didn't want to look at. So the death of a partner, um, the rejection by a family member, the loss of a job three weeks before Christmas, the um, uh, death of a child, all that stuff fuels these addictive process behaviors because that's how we cope. And let's be honest, none of us would do that if it didn't work mm -hmm. for a period of time. And so that's the big news is when I avoid it, it just gets worse. So my recommendation is not to avoid it, but that we actually go in there and actually process it. Like how do you work on a big project? You know, how do you eat an elephant? Like chew that sucker up one little bite at a time. And that's what the book helps people do. It actually moves them through, let's do this now. Let's look at that now. But, and here's the point that I want to make. I really believe that we're shaped for service through our suffering. And anytime that I go through something very significant, it's actually shaping me for some greater work. And the way that I can get to that purpose or that direction in my life is actually going through the dark corridor of grief and loss and figuring out what the lessons are for me there and what the assignment in the world is for me. And 
that's that whole idea of post-traumatic growth. Mm -hmm. But if I get stuck, if I get sidelined, if I take the off-ramp, the avoidant off-ramp, which, you know, every now and then you got to, but if I do that as a regular thing, then that becomes my life. Like I've met people in treatment where their whole life now is about this addiction or they lost their marriage because of it, or their health is failing. And it's like, that was not the intended place for them to go. Like the, their direction was to go and do work in this world and, and be a world changer. It wasn't to get sidelined in addiction, even though I know that happens and I'm not bagging on anybody, but it's kind of like, that's never what they were supposed to be about. So we got to get the down dark stuff up and out so they can move forward and like do their world changing stuff. Yeah. And that's, it's so hard for some people to do that. I mean, I, I know, I don't, I could rattle off the names of 10 people I know who need to do that work, um, but are avoiding doing that at, at all. Call them right now and get them on the phone. We're going to figure it out while we talk. <laughs> I don't think that all of them would appreciate being put on the spot like that though. Be like, so you were supposed to make that movie and you were supposed to help those orphans and you were supposed to create that really cool thing with the mind you've been given, but naughty thing you're over there not doing it come on yeah um so kind of biting biting the elephant um which is it which is sort of a, a vision that i won't get out of my head anytime soon especially oh, for like in danger i think but um you know one little one little bite at a time um uh sounds very useful to me yeah it's it mostly and you'll know this as a parent you can do just about anything if you know like bedtime's coming. <laughs> like you can drive and you can handle a lot of stuff if you know it's leading somewhere. And, and that's the message that I want people to hear is that, you know, when you go on this hero's journey of difficulty, you know, there's this call to adventure, you know, the, it's a beautiful story arc, right? The, the hero's journey of this person is called into these unfathomable odds and they have to face all these dragons and difficulties and barriers but they emerge changed and transformed and then they return home to the village with new special sauce with magic with some you know it's just like the harry potter story it's the it's uh it's lord of the rings it's beowulf it's star wars and so when I'm in the dark corridor of grief and I'm fighting my dragons, those things are all teachers for me. And they're, they've been sent to make me who I'm meant to be, right? So they're the transformers that have come around me and teaching me the lessons. I love Byron Katie. She has this quote and she says, look, life's not happening to you. It's happening for you. And just that shift in those prepositions two versus four is powerful like if i can get that into my psyche it might be like whoa i become way more open invitational curious about these things because for instance you know when i, I work with people who have severe losses and man, I will just start crying sometimes when I hear their stories, you know, the loss of a child, uh, victims of crime. Um, and I'll tell you the thing that I see that it does is it takes and catalyzes these people, not all of them, let's be honest, like some of us are going to grow after all the shit that we go through. And some people are going to be like, I'm good. I just want to get in my recliner. Fine. Leave me alone. That's all good. 
but some of them have really risen from the ashes and really changed culture with that stuff. And, you know, that's undeniable. Mark and Jackie Barden after Sandy Hook, like they have literally changed the world for millions of people, school children, because they lost their son in an unbelievable tragedy. You know, they have, uh, and, and they were, they didn't sign up for that. Yeah. You know, it found them. And so they've taken all of their grief and made it good for us. Like it's very, this is what I call very bittersweet, very sad, glad, very like I wouldn't choose it. It chose me. Tyler Perry, he's a producer, director, actor. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Rick and Kay Warren in the evangelical church. There's so many on and on and on. I mean, I have a friend, she got a wicked breast cancer and listen, she was 24. That girl's a movie maker now. She's made this movie called Vincible. Like she talks to Harvard now. The girl was just a 24 year old college grad and her whole life got disrupted and thrown into the shitter. And like she rose and she has changed the world and the face of young adult cancer. She gets calls from Brigham Young from, I mean, not literally Brigham Young, because I feel like he might be dead. I, I don't you know, know that he has access to a phone. Um, I'm feeling like he might not. So maybe, maybe Joseph, the other dude, but okay, I don't know. I'm not LDS. But anyway, she like, we're talking to Boston College on Thursday because she was just like, look, if this dragon has come for me, I'm coming for it. I mean, and it brought this courage up out of her and this tenacity and this stick to of there's no accident. I mean, she doesn't say that every day. Like someday she calls me and she's like, I just want to die. Like, this is terrible. And I'm like, of course, when I have post-traumatic growth, guess what I had first? A shit ton of trauma. Like most people I work with are full on complex PTSD patients. Yeah. And then like, what's the next step? I don't do, I don't go there too soon. Like I don't silver lining that stuff right away, but I have my eye. I'm like, this person is being shaped by some pretty heavy suffering. I'm so curious what goes from here. So I know we, we, we talk a lot about big grief, um, you know, loss of a child, um, you know, life altering diagnosis. Um, what about small griefs? Um, you know, I wonder, I wonder how much they come into play too. And I'll give you an example of what I think is a small grief uh, for me. Um, you know, we, we were talking about, about triplets and my identity for most of my adult life and, and just about all of my adult married life is in the role of father. Mm -hmm. um, and I extremely active in, in that role. Um, uh, and now that they've all kind of left the nest, Dang, kids, uh, what they do that for? I, well, you know, and I'm very happy that they're all living their best lives at their various colleges and universities. But um, I find myself like almost yearning for, uh, maybe grief is the wrong word. I, I can't even say I'm grieving for the time when they were younger, but when they needed me more, like more than just to like pay the tuition bill right. uh, or Venmo them some cash when, you know, they need beer money or something. Um but there's, there's a small grief there. I think like, there's a small, like, oh man, I really do wish, and, or I'll see like, you know, a, a young family, you know, somewhere doing something together. And I'm like, gosh, I really kind of miss those, those days. Or I'm talking to somebody who's like telling me how hard it is because their seven-year-old is blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I think to myself, you know, it just goes by so fast, but I do find myself like 
sad about it at times. I mean, is that a small, is that a small grief or no? Yeah, that's a big one because literally life cleared out so much space in you for connection and love and um, really emotional intimacy is when a family is really close and we're all connected, not perfect, but there's this just essence of deep love between the members where like, like in our family, I'm like, these are my four favorite people, literally like my heart soars. And I'm not, I don't think I'm anymore one of those weird helicopter moms though. I think we all were right. Because we were raising our kids in the nineties and we didn't know, we just knew our parents made us latchkey kids. Like no one was watching out over, you know, the bad stuff that happened to me growing up because nobody was home. Like that was a whole like foray into therapy of like, I had no supervision. So then we had kids and we're like, I'm going to watch the shit out of these kids, you know? And so when you leverage your life or something as meaningful as family, and then you and your wife have like, you cook the cake, you frost it, you serve it. It's like job well done, right? What can top that, Mike? Yeah, I, I don't know. But, but it's, it, there's, there's, um, I think it's, it's more complicated than it seems, you know, it, it is job well done, but there's also like a little loss of identity. And then there's also some like, like trying to figure out who we are again as a couple, because we've had, we've had more time as a married couple with kids than we did without, because we had kids three years into our marriage. They're 19 now. Um, So we didn't have all the time that we know other people had to see the world, have adventures. You know, we were always just like against, against the clock um, because we were just overwhelmed all the time. Um, You guys were partners in arms. I mean, honestly, that's almost like a um, foxhole experience when you have something where around the clock, something's needed. You guys probably, and I'm just supposing, I don't know. um, You guys probably bonded like, you know, it's us against them and everything that has to happen. And that becomes a powerful bond and friendship and comrade. One of the struggles with long-term marriage is actually keeping the spark there. You'd be surprised how many, maybe you wouldn't be, how many marriages actually end when the children go away to school because mom and dad have not remained husband and wife. And so they don't have um, the hot attraction the really mind-blowing sex, the really deep conversation. They don't have the intrigue of a new relationship. And we don't have enough in culture about keeping um, like hot monogamy and really deep long-term marriage is like not highly valued because it's not sexy. It's not interesting to be like, Mike, you're a family man and you raised three kids and you have a good marriage. Wow, I want to post all about that. They're like, good for you, go away, right? <laughs> Right. Like the family man is something made fun of. Yeah. But I would say there's a significant amount of grief that goes with the empty nest. And here's the thing. We're not ready for it. It just hits. After our middle son left, we were somewhere buying a used bicycle. And the owner of the bike <clears throat> brings out this little white puppy, poodle puppy. And he goes, do you want to hold this dog? because she was so cute or I picked her up or something. And I go, like, I couldn't let her go afterwards. My husband goes, we're not getting a new dog. Like give that dog back. Cause he said, we're giving the dog away. I burst into tears because my arms were so empty from not having like my duckies, right? My kids. And so one of the things for us 
is to reinvent ourselves, is to do like, what's our second act? Yeah. What is it? And maybe just force your kids to have grandkids so you can be like, I'm just going to grandpa. I can't live without you guys. Just here, kick that puppy out. Let's do it. No, no. I mean, I'm not, I'm not necessarily ready for that yet. Um, I would like to learn more about this hot monogamy that you talk about uh, so, because that would be fun. Okay. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to throw a book your way. Okay. Okay. The long erotic weekend. Oh, okay. I'm listening. It's a four day foray. It's like a long weekend. We did this up in Vancouver. Uh, oh, is we, what, what's a rating on this podcast here? Like R N C 17. It can be whatever we want it to be. Okay. That blew our minds and it was not very user-friendly. Like we had to read chapters, which kind of interrupts the mood, you know, but damn Daniel, like that, we were like, holy heck, who are you? Who are you? And we were overcoming all like the cancer stuff too, because, you know, I lose my femininity, my identity. We're middle aged. Like, that's not that sexy when you're like, oh my gosh, my middle is bigger than my, okay. There's a lot. The long erotic weekend, you guys need to go do that and then call me and I'll give you part two of it afterwards. But (laughs) a little red wine, a little something, something. And it was literally four days of tantric sex and connectedness and breathing together. But here's the problem with something like that. Okay. Like that's super juicy. Like Gwyneth Paltrow on her goop, sexy stuff. I love that. Um, and I'm referencing the Netflix special she has out right now, which is, is good. I like it. I give thumbs up as a marriage therapist for that, but here's the problem with long erotic weekends. Like they're super fun. If you can clear the clutter on all the shit that's between you and your wife. Mm-hmm. So the emotional part doesn't keep blocking you. Cause if you guys have a lot of stuff, no, I'm going to say if we, as married couples, I'm not going to put Mike and his wife on the treadmill on the spot here. That's no fun. If you guys can't clear the clutter on the deep stuff, that's like the Gottmans say like there's 70% of marriage problems that remain unsolved. And it's just that stuff that grinds your gears about the other person. If you guys can't dissipate the energy around that, like sex is, it's not that great together. And you're, especially you guys, you become more like roommates or brother and sister at 23 years of marriage than like, I can't wait to F your brains out tonight, partners. And there's this stage of marriage called celebration. And that's, that would be my goal for you guys is to discover celebration together. Cause that shit's good. Yeah. I've, good. I've heard about this from other people. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it's like, not something you expect to happen overnight. But, uh, no. you know, but it sounds like there's some work that has to be done before the celebration can begin. Well, so you guys coming out because we can do something up in Northern California. I have a little retreat place. We'll book it. We'll just get in there and work it all out together. There we go. There we go. It's a deal. Uh, I'll, okay. I'll have to convince, I'll have to convince my better half to, uh, to, uh, to, to, uh, to embrace her own vulnerabilities in that regard. So. We'll do, we'll do all the ROI for her. Here's going to be your return on investment. Here's. Here's what we can do with Mike for you, <laughs> but wait, there's more. <laughs> We're here with the next ten minutes, and right. you can have two mics. That's right. <laughs> just pay extra processing and handling. Right, right, exactly. Two mics, one for this, one for that, and you know, it could be really good for you. 
Well, I mean, we we certainly covered a lot of ground here, Cindy. I mean, we 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 talked about Ted Lasso. We did. We didn't talk about Nate, but we can table that for another time. I don't like Nate's transformation. I, I'm just going to be honest. I don't either, but I understand, you know, why why maybe it had to happen. See how they pegged the parents for that too. The parents, yeah. not good. Yeah. So not we talked about Ted Lasso. We talked about grief. Um, yeah. We talked about all the fucks you cannot give. That's right. Uh, which, by the way, was was titled after uh, "All the Light We Cannot See." Um, so oh, I, I like the fucks not given. Yes, yes. Yeah, and you should tell you should. This is all the fucks I don't give. <laughs> this is sub. This is this was a subliminal um, message to all my audience, <laughs> giving them a big fu. Uh, and we talked about um, a hot monogamy. Hot monogamy. We should also have a podcast, another one about getting fired, like getting fired stories. Cause I have a really good one. I got fired by a psychiatrist in a group email. Oh, wow. All my colleagues on there. And uh, like, there's some really good juicy getting fired stories as an adult professional that I think would just be super entertaining. Cause yeah. yours was, yours was like top, like that was very, that lover. I think oh. you got, I think you got it topped right there. Yeah. Well, it, it happened. It, it, it's exactly the way it went down. And uh, I'm a better person for it. Uh, <laughs> so that's that. What else? Anything else we need to talk about, Cindy, before we, uh, we part company here? You know, I work with a good organization um, called Love to Pivot at lovetopivot.com. So they are actually where um, my mentor, remember my cool, coolio mentor? The, the cool a- aunt, yes. Yeah, so she's got a really great uh, program up in the Bay Area where people come and do tons of post-traumatic growth, uh, erotic monogamy. Uh, Wait, did I say erotic monogamy? That could be a thing, the hot monogamy. And I just want to plug them because Love to Pivot is doing something that in my field, I don't see that often. They are doing fast change, good interventions, boom, 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 get in, get out, do it for people who are ready to change versus being in therapy three times a week for five years. So I do want to say that because I like their work. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's um, great. And I will certainly put them in, in our write-up as well uh, when, we, when we put this up. Um, I love that idea, though, that it's not three times a week for, for five years or whatever it is. No, yeah. You know, no. sometimes you need the, uh, the jump start. you know. That's right. Therapy's not moving you forward, man. Find a new therapist. Like that one's got to go. Bye, bye, bye. An insurance company. Well, anyway, as a whole nother podcast, I have a I have a rant about insurance companies. We have a big strike out here. Okay, shut Cindy down. It's one hour. Cindy, thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. We had fun on our podcast. We certainly did. Thank you for co-hosting. <laughs> You're welcome. Good to see you, Mike.